for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are discussing an important transitional time in American history. With the end of the Civil War, everyone who lived in the southern United States found the world completely changed. For white Americans, the vast wealth that had been tied to a slave economy was gone, and the social hierarchy based on the subservience of African Americans began to change. For the formerly enslaved, newly acquired freedom came with its own set of exceedingly difficult challenges. The ability for African Americans to make decisions related to their futures was coupled with the inherent racism that still existed following the war. To assist the formerly enslaved in their transition to freedom, the federal government inaugurated a program called the Freedmen's Bureau. Created in March of 1865, its initial purpose was to direct provisions, clothing, and fuel as may be deemed needful for the immediate and temporary shelter and supply of destitute and suffering refugees and freedmen and their wives and children. Over the next several years, the Freedmen's Bureau's purpose would greatly expand to serve the needs of the African-American community. One of the Bureau's most successful endeavors was in the area of education. Freedmen's schools cropped up all over the South, allowing African-Americans to gain an education for the first time. Freedmen's schools will be the focus of today's episode of History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Joanne McClellan, who is also the president of the African-American Heritage Society of Murray County, and Dr. Antoinette Van Zelm, who is the Assistant Director for the Center of Historic Preservation at Middle Tennessee State University. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. First off, Dr. Van Zelm, what were the conditions in America that brought about the existence of the Freedmen's Bureau? Well, Tom, the Freedmen's Bureau was founded toward the very end of the war, and the reasoning behind it was that there needed to be an organization that could assist the people in the former Confederate states as they made that transition from wartime to peacetime and, of course, from a time of slavery to a time of freedom. Who were some of the key players, uh, both nationally and in Tennessee? Who were who the leaders uh, creating the Freedmen's Bureau? Well, the first commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, so basically the director, was General, General Oliver Otis Howard, who had fought with the Army of the Cumberland here in Tennessee and at other locations in the Western Theater. And it's important to note that the Freedmen's Bureau was created as a branch of the War Department. And that, in and of itself, tells you a lot about why it was um, created, and also it tells you about the conditions that had developed during the war in places like Tennessee. In Tennessee, you really had a rehearsal for Reconstruction during the wartime itself because so much of the state became occupied by the Union Army. Um, By the end of the war, the entire state was occupied. So, What you had was as soon as the Union Army would 
come to an area of Tennessee, immediately, immediately, you had African Americans who escaped from slavery and went to Union lines to gain their freedom. They were the proactive, although, of course, they probably wouldn't have used that kind of word then, but they, they, they took that initiative to do that. And so immediately the army, the Union Army, had to decide what it was going to do with um, the um, African-Americans who fled to Union lines. So the army became very involved with this transition from slavery to freedom. Therefore, when the Freedmen's Bureau was created, it was part of the War Department, and the Union Army continued to play a role in the Freedmen's Bureau. The commissioner, General Howard, being a Union general, he was a person who had grown up in New England. He became an abolitionist, and he believed that education was an important means for racial uplift. So as head of the Freedmen's Bureau, he promoted education. Um, Howard University in Washington, D.C., which is one of the nation's most prominent historically black colleges and universities, was named after General Howard. Lincoln Memorial University here in Tennessee, in Upper East Tennessee, was founded in part by General Howard later in the 19th century because he wanted to fulfill a promise to pre- to former President Abraham Lincoln, who wanted to be sure that the loyal people of Upper East Tennessee received some benefits after the war because of their loyalty to the Union. So, so... As the front lines move forward, immediately there is an issue that the Union Army is having to deal with as as formerly enslaved people are leaving the plantations. And absolutely the case here in Middle Tennessee, in Murray County especially, because it's such such a, a large agricultural area, uh, a large number of enslaved people living here, they're fleeing, yes. going within the Union Army lines, and all of a sudden there's a logistical issue for the Army. What what do we do with, with all these refugees? Right, and, exactly. And, and they immediately put, put many of them, um, offered many of them work, or impressed them, put them to work without their saying one way or the other. So <laughs> It, it, it had both sides to it. Um, so I think it's interesting that, so so this happens early in the war. At Nashville changes hands in 1862. It's yes. already a problem by then, surely, but it's all the way until 1860, uh, March of 1865, right. when the when they create the, the Freedmen's Bureau uh, within right. the federal government to actually do something about the issue. And so, so first, right. the, the first issue, or the first... Uh, endeavor of the Freedmen's Bureau is are the very basics. It seems like to me, uh, is that is that right? So they're they're feeding them, they're clothing them, and then the Freedmen's Bureau sort of expands their initiative. What are what are some of the other initiatives that the Freedmen's Bureau began? Well, yes, definitely they expanded um, their. Um what they wanted to do, but they built definitely upon what had been done during the war here in Tennessee, also in places like Norfolk, Virginia, New Orleans, that kind of thing. So, um, but the other um, areas that they were interested in, other than just providing aid at the beginning, and of course, they, they had a definite outlook that 
any kind of aid or assistance was to be temporary. You have to put your mind back to the 19th century. You have to be thinking before the Great Society, before the New Deal, before the Progressive Movement, before the idea that the federal government would help with the social welfare of its citizens. Go way back in your mind to that period. They did not want to do anything to make people dependent. There was a real um, worry about that. So, But they, they assisted with um, setting up schools. They assisted with uh, labor contracts between the formerly enslaved and former planters. Um, they uh, assisted with um, marriages um, between um, in formerly enslaved people. Um, and they also uh, set up some courts to um, adjudicate um, differences between employers and workers, as well as uh, between the freedmen themselves at times. So uh, another issue that they were involved with was uh, the abandoned lands. Um, the full name of the Freedmen's Bureau was the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. And so the Freedmen's Bureau was uh, looking at what to do with those lands that Confederate owners had left during the war. And uh, the whole idea of whether that land would be distributed to the former slaves, uh, that never happened. Um, so that's one area that the Freedmen's Bureau is seen as not uh, succeeding in. But education, the area of education is definitely one where they're seen as being um, successful in laying a groundwork. And I don't want to spend most of our time on education yes. today, uh, but I find it interesting. So it's a it's a complex and very comprehensive program. At least that's what their their goal is. Do we know what what level the uh, bureau was funded? Well, when it was first created in 1865, um, it was created just for one year, and it did not receive any funding at all, not a single cent of funding. It could use the um, officers, um, military officers of the United States Army, um, could become agents of the Freedmen's Bureau. And so that's what happened. Um, but it didn't have any appropriation until 1866, when um, Congress uh voted to extend the Freedmen's Bureau until 1868 and appropriated $7 million. But that's for all of the former Confederate states. Uh, so it was chronically underfunded and overworked. <laughs> sure. Um, so there are, are a large number of African Americans who are heading into the northern states at this time period. Did the, did the Freedmen's Bureau uh, work in, in northern states as well, or, or was their mandate really just in the southern states? Their mandate was just in the former Confederacy, and as I mentioned, they're part of the War Department. Their focus is this transition from wartime to peacetime. They're supposed to be temporary. Um, they, it, there was not an overall um, mandate to assist with African-American education in the country as a whole or anything like that. It was merely... Um, uh, an effort to um, provide educational opportunities to those who were formerly enslaved and had largely been denied any kind of education. So how did they begin the education component? How, how many schools, do we know how many schools they opened up in the southern states? Um, yes, we do. They opened up, I believe it was, um, sorry. 
3,000 schools throughout the throughout the United States. And so how did they organize these? Were there divisions uh, or were, was the organization of the Freedmen Schools by state? Um, was there a, was there an, was there a hierarchy? I guess is is the question. So let, let's look at Tennessee, for instance. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau decides to open Freedmen schools throughout the state of Tennessee. Who, who's in charge at the state level? And then how do they how do they open these schools? Right at the state level, there is an assistant commissioner, and so in Tennessee, the first assistant commissioner was um, General Clinton B. Fisk. And he was, like General Howard, he was a northerner who had served in the Union Army. And um, General Fisk actually ended up um, in Spring Hill at one point in September of 1865. And he gave a speech there. And I'd like to read a quote from that speech because it focuses on the education. And he said, a very important matter to the welfare of all classes is the cause of education. It is to the interest of planters to encourage the dissemination of learning among the freedmen. What vast fortunes have been made out of their unpaid toil. Now it is the duty of a Christian people to educate and elevate their freedmen in the scale of intelligence. And, of course, the whole idea was that you wanted to have an educated citizenry, and so education was closely linked to um, the opportunity eventually to vote, um, which would be very significant for uh, the formerly enslaved. But yes, General um, Fisk was the assistant commissioner, and then um, underneath him in Tennessee, there were um, basically field officers or, or field agents, and they were sent out to various locations, Columbia being one of them, um, Murfreesboro another. Uh, a lot of times they were um, headquartered in county seats uh, throughout um, Middle Tennessee and, and throughout the states, uh, the rest of the state and the states as a whole. And so they were the ones on the ground who were dealing with um, setting up the schools and um, carrying out the Freedmen's Bureau mission. Did enrollment include both adult learners as well as children? Yes, yes. There's many comments on how um, enthusiastic adult learners were, um, and almost all of the schools had um, classes for children and also classes for adults. And often the adult classes would take place in the evening uh, when uh, the adults had more time to participate. And um, one of the standard um, understandings, um, and, and there are quotes that, that support this, um, was that adults largely were very interested in learning how to read because they wanted to be able to read the Bible. And so that was a, a, an important com- component. They also wanted to be able to understand um, if they were being cheated, for example, by a merchant or an employer. Um, they understood that education was essential for them to make their way in the world and um, to become citizens. And then um, also there was the the religious component of them being able to read the Bible. Right. We're going to take our first break. Uh, thank you for listening to History's Hook. We'll be right back. Don't go away. 
History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello, this is Rick Tillis with Tillis Jewelry in Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. What are you looking for in a jeweler? Knowledgeable staff? Experienced goldsmiths? Or true custom designers? Experienced working with clients creating that perfect gift for a special loved one? Well, you have found them. Tillis Jewelry. We're this and so much more. Check us out at TillisJewelry.com or on Facebook and Instagram to see our latest creations. Tillis Jewelry, Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Freedmen's Bureau and specifically within that, the Freedmen's Schools. Uh, I have joining me in the studio today, Dr. Antoinette Van Zelm, who is uh, a professor at Middle Tennessee State University and an expert on the subject. Uh, Dr. Van Zelm, the Freedmen's schools are being opened up uh, around uh, the South, he, he, including here in, in Tennessee. Uh, how are the schools staffed and by whom? The schools were staffed, Tom, by many individuals, um, including Native Tennesseans and including African Americans. And I just want to make that point first, because the traditional stereotype of the Yankee school arm coming down from the north um, has had such a a hold on people's imaginations for so long. And there were certainly uh, women like that who did come um, south to teach. But uh, the most recent study that's been done of Freedmen's Bureau teachers from throughout the South 
found that especially uh, early on that African-Americans constituted a significant number of the teachers. Secondly, that study found that, surprisingly, white Southerners actually um, taught uh, more than uh, white Northerners in the South, and and they were usually doing it for... um, you know, employment reasons for money. Um, so that just there's been some interesting work that's been done recently that sort of upended some of the stereotypes. But um, so individuals in um, Tennessee became teachers. Sometimes they were ministers. Other times they were formerly freed um, African-Americans who had never been enslaved and who had educations. Um, but also um Organizations such as benevolent and missionary organizations um, from the North and also from the Midwest, um, they supplied uh, a great number of teachers um, as well. And um, those relationships had been started between the United States military and some of those missionary and benevolent organizations. Those started as early as 1862 in Tennessee. So it's sort of an ongoing process. The Freedmen's Bureau agents, they had too much to do. They didn't actually teach. Um, and they, they didn't administer specific schools. They were the facilitators. They helped, uh, especially in getting the buildings and the places where school was taught um, and, you you know, we imagine the one-room schoolhouse, and there were certainly some of those, but a lot of times the schools were held in um, all sorts of different buildings, including barns, um, federal blockhouses that had been built um, as, as, you know, military structures. Um, also, uh, churches, of course, were very much used as school buildings. And you mentioned that the Bureau was partnering with a number of other organizations, too. So were they helping with funding, or, or did funding come specifically from the Freedmen's Bureau? Um, well, the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, had limited funding um, that they used, um, I think, largely for the, um, in some cases, the construction of school buildings or the, the rental of, of buildings for schools, that kind of thing. Um, as far as paying the teachers themselves, um, occasionally the Freedmen's Bureau did that, but it was often these churches, missionary organizations, um, and uh, benevolent groups. Um, one of the most prominent was the uh, American Missionary Association, another, uh, the Western Freedmen's Aid Commission. Um, and um, these organizations kept phenomenal records. So in addition to the Freedmen's Bureau records, uh, you have these uh, organizational records that can give you a lot of great insight into the teachers. Plus, the other thing is to remember is that a lot of times the students paid to go to school. So uh, like a dollar a month was how much they paid to keep the, the teachers employed and to keep the schools going. So um, they were not uh, necessarily free. Right, right. So uh, they're trying to partner as much as they can in the community with the organizations. I know, uh, I think through some of the research that you've done, Joanne, uh, we see that a lot of the, sometimes the land is donated by churches and exactly. organizations. Exactly. And then the students are, are asked to pay a little bit as well to help to help make these schools sort of self-sufficient. Can we talk for a minute about what what are the students learning? What what are the educational materials that they're using to teach these these new students? 
Um, they're learning the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic um, generally. Those are, um, you know, that's sort of the, the at, at the ground level. They're they're learning that. Um, you know, they're using some of the standard, um, you know, McGuffey's Reader and some of those um, books that were standard uh, um, within 19th century um, education. Um, and a lot of those materials are being supplied by the um, Northern Missionary and Benevolent Organizations. Uh, but there were also elements in some of the schools where they wanted to be sure that the students uh, gained some skills, for example, that they could then use um, in the workforce. So um, needlework for women, for or, or girls, I should say, um, was taught uh, um, in the schools at, at times. Um, there were also other sort of like manual training and and farm work and other kind of um, types of work that the students would do during school time in order to provide them with some um, skills that they'd be able to use after school. So, but definitely the the focus was on um, learning to read, learning to write, and learning the the basics of, of math. Joanne, I know you've done a lot of research on sort of the local aspect related to Freedmen Schools. Um, in your research, how many Freedmen Schools were in Murray County? Well, I'm not really sure what the total count is, but by 1865, we had nine Freedmen Bureau Schools here in, um, in Murray County. Where were they located? Well, they were basically all over the county. Um, they were, you know, they had two here in Columbia, one down in Mount Pleasant, one down near Curlyoka, one over in uh, on Rutherford Creek, the Godwin area. They're basically all over uh, Murray County. I think one of the wonderful things about the Freedmen's Bureau generally right now is all of their records, uh, because it was a, f a federal entity, they were careful record keepers, and, and so much of that material has survived and teaches us so much about uh, the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen's Schools and how they worked. Um, but we have um, some primary materials, too, uh, from some of the teachers that, that taught in the schools here. Uh, Joanne, tell us a little bit about the Spring Hill School and how it got started. Well, it's really interesting. And he, um, the teacher was Henry Eddy. And the good news for us here in Murray County is that a few years ago, his great-great-grandson brought a copy of his diary to Murray County. And we were able to get a real good insight into how he was treated and how he was building the school. Uh, he came down in, in September... And by um, the end of September, he had like 57 students in his class. He came down to Murray County with Clinton B. Fisk. And he was, you know, just dedicated or just driven to start a school here in Murray County. The school was an old cow shed, and he had to clean manure off the floor and put up um, timbers for timbers for um, seats and one thing that he, he said and I thought was really interesting and I'd like to read this quote from his diary and he said only one or two could read most did not know their letters he found the students eager to learn and very well behaved and I thought that was really really telling of the interest in the students wanting to learn to um, read and write and one from what I found is that most of these students really understood that their true path to freedom was education. You know, they really needed to know how to read and write. They needed to know how to manage their lives, their work contracts, and that was really interesting. But uh, at 
uh, Eddie quickly established a larger school. He came here leaving a wife and a child back in Illinois, but he still wanted to come, and he had planned to bring them down here, but the citizens here treated him very, very poorly. They were opposed to a white Union soldier teaching the uh, former slaves. So he was really very... He was treated as an outcast. He lived with the um, African-Americans. He, his whole world was centered around the African-American community. At one point, I read in his diary where he even attended their churches. He conducted a funeral. Um, when they were trying to buy land, the white citizens kept increase, increasing the price of the land so they couldn't afford it. So they finally, they had this little committee and they finally got someone to sell them a small piece of property for like $425 and they built the school. But he was really dedicated to um, teaching the people in that community. He eventually brought his wife and child down here and she became a teacher of the Freeman Bureau of Schools. But there's another quote that I would like to um, read about the treatment of Henrietta and his family in this community. And he says, the, the people of this town do not receive us at all. We have spoken to no white woman since we arrived. No one asks us to call. No one calls. We're ignored and cast out as evil. And this was very, very difficult for for them. Um, they stayed here they stayed here several more years and then they eventually moved back to Illinois, I assume. But the good news is his great great grandson was driving through Murray County and he thought that we would want to know more about his uh, great grandparents who lived here and he um, gave us the gave donated the diary to the Murray County Archives and I decided to call him one day and I talked to him a long time about his experiences and invited him to come back to Murray County and talk about what he had learned from his family firsthand. But that was one of the more interesting. Um, we're, we're so fortunate that that happened. I, I love when those coincidences take place because <laughs> they really fill in a, a, an important piece of this puzzle that talks about what life was like here just, just following the war and, and, and very much speaks to the uh, experience of African-Americans here in Murray County. Uh, we're going to have to take our second break. Uh, I know we're just we're just getting rolling with this. It's, it's exciting. Uh, we'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. 
Hi, I'm Steve, the garbage man. A while back, I told you a story about Packer, our mascot, that Don found in the garbage truck after someone had thrown her out. Well, since then, I've been asked several times about Packer. Is she a dog or is she a cat? I guess I never thought to say, but she's a pit bull mix. And you can see a picture of her sitting in the driver's seat of Don's service truck on our website, garbagemaninc.com. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the very beginnings of education for African Americans uh, following the Civil War. Uh, I have in the studio with me uh, uh, Joanne McClellan, who's the president of the African American Heritage Society of Murray County, and uh, uh, Dr. Van Zelm, who is with the Center for Historic Preservation at MTSU. Joanne, the story that you just told is a, a pretty incredible one. I find it interesting that in the end, Mr. Eddy and his family moved back to Illinois. He was faced with some pretty serious threats, I think, to, to his life and to his family. Is that common? Is violence a, sort of a component of this, uh, of this endeavor? I don't know. I don't know. But one one threat of violence, actually, um, Mr. Eddy was threatened by uh, some white citizens in the community. And what happened was a Union soldier ended up being shot in the back of the head. And he actually died protecting Henry Eddy. Um, the um, soldier was never, uh, the person was never charged, and I looked for that in the list of murders in the records, and I couldn't even find that. But the he eventually reported the act of violence to Mr. to Clinton Fisk with the Freedom Bureau, but nothing really happened. But it was in what I've seen, it was pretty prevalent. Uh, was it that the way? Was it that way across Tennessee? Yes, Joanne, definitely um, arson was a big problem um, as far as um, opponents to the Freedmen's schools would burn them down. So that was one issue. And then, of course, yes, uh, anything from harassment to murder of the teachers um, that did take place um, in Tennessee and throughout um, the the former Confederacy. Um, so that was definitely there and um, made it even more um, challenging uh, to get an education. And so I think you come away from it with really um, an admiration for the persistence um, on the part of the um, those who had been enslaved to um, to continue and to, to you know they like you mentioned earlier they recognized very much that education was the key and so that that just you know they, they were not dissuaded but it was not easy there was a school that was established here in by the uh, black community in fact it ended up being Mount Lebanon Church and the teacher of that school was a Thomas J. White, and he was a barber before he started teaching. He taught, and then after he 
completed that teaching assignment, he was selected by some Republican organization to be, um, they entered a resolution to nominate him for some position in Congress. So he, I think he left the state because I couldn't find him anymore. And on his report, he would write, uh, the sentiment was like favorable or getting better, or some of the editor of the newspaper said they, the sentiment was better now than it was a couple of months ago. But I think it sort of varied based on the community you were in. Down in Mount Pleasant, uh, there was a school that was started in um, 1865, but then I think a later school was started, and the teacher there was an Anna Bond, and she came from the Spring Hill community. So I'm assuming, based on her one quote that I'm going to read in a second, she was probably one of Henrietta's students. She attended that Freedmen Bureau School in uh, in Spring Hill, and then she decided, she was hired to teach in Mount Pleasant. And, you know, of course, they had to fill out these monthly reports. And she wrote on one of her monthly reports, and when I first read this, it just sort of took me to tears. It said that I am teaching in a private building. And at that time, she was teaching in a building that was owned by an African-American. His name was Wesley Briscoe. And he was a merchant in Mount Pleasant. So he allowed them to uh, teach temporarily in his building. And then they were trying to raise money for a permanent school. And she goes on to say, I have been here but a short while. I hope you will look over the mistakes. Indeed, sir. Three years ago, I had neither the privilege nor the ability to use this pen. And I thought that was just Mm. like heart. (laughs) It was just like, oh, my gosh, here's a young woman who wanted to learn. She became a teacher. And then I found out that she continued to teach a few more years. And there was a newspaper article that said that the school... Um, it said, accomplished Anna Bond of Spring Hill commences teaching in a colored school here at this place, which was Mount Pleasant, and she's already has a large number of students. And I found by doing additional research, she continued her education. She got a degree from the Central Tennessee College. She ended up marrying a Reverend Pickett. And, of course, they're both buried over in the Spring Hill Cemetery, which is really very interesting. She started as a slave, no education. She ended up graduating from college in 1879. You know, that's like 10 years from probably the time that she graduated from Eddie's school, and she was uh, teaching, and with a college degree, and that's that's wonderful. There is one other story, Tom, that I think is really interesting. Um, uh, Anthony talked about um, the Union Army taking over Columbia, and then the Confederate Army, and it was just back and forth, back and forth. So when the Union Army was here. They gave this guy named William Jordan permission to open a school, and he happened to open a school in the building that was the first building of the St. Paul Church. And he, um, but when the Confederates came, they uh, punished him by giving him 25 lashes for opening a school to teach African American children. And he uh, eventually became a teacher in the old female seminary with the Potters, Hmm. with Reverend Potter. He was one of the five teachers that uh, taught in that school. But then St. Paul ended up being one of the, uh, being a site of a Freedman Bureau school. They moved from the corner of Greenwood Cemetery over to 
where they're located now, and that was a Freedman school. And that school was managed by a Reverend B.L. Brooks, who was a teacher and an AME minister. And oh, by the way, there was a lady teaching with him named Anna Flippin, and I'm trying to prove that she is or is not one of my ancestors. So. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is exciting, but it seems as if the people here were really, really focused on education. They really saw that as a, as a key. And the school that, was, that became out in Lebanon, uh, some prominent citizens attended that school as students. They were born in 1860 and 1863, so they had to start school at the Freedman Bureau School. And they were R.G. Johnson, who ended up being one of the first the second principal of College Hill School and J.H. Kelly, I mean, uh, J.W. Johnson, who was uh, an entrepreneur. He graduated from Roger Williams University. He was the president of the first, he was the first black president of Roger Williams University. He went to Brown University, but he started out in the Freeman Bureau School, and so did his brother, R.G. Johnson. So, you know, those Freeman Bureau schools, you know, it, we had some very, very sex, successful citizens coming out of the Freedman Bureau schools in Murray County. So, they, the Freedman's Bureau schools have a huge impact, I think, on education. In even to now, you can sort of follow that that line, <laughs> where they're getting the r- rudimentary education, the, the very beginnings of education. There, some of them move north and and get education there and then come back to this area that that that's those stories always just fascinate me that they come back to this area because they see the need to educate further the young people that are are here and still sort of feeling the effects of of the civil war and reconstruction in in this space uh really really incredible stories and I think that um, those are great examples, too, of, of some of the common threads that you see throughout the former Confederacy with the Freedmen's Bureau schools and the significance of getting that rudimentary education, then going to college, uh, Fisk University founded in Nashville, named after Clinton B. Fisk, so that it could um, educate African-Americans to then go out and teach. And so um, it's very important. And there, you know, Fisk had something they call like the normal, the normal classes or where they were teaching teachers. Right. There were schools like that here in Columbia, also in Knoxville, also in Chattanooga. In 1868, uh, the Freeman Bureau saw the need for teachers, and they started building these types of classes or schools around Tennessee to teach teachers. They identified those people, and Anna Bond may have been one. They identified those kids who wanted to be teachers and they started training them to become teachers let's uh sort of step back we've talked about the local stories a little bit let's talk about this a little bit more broadly again uh was there pushback we know there was pushback on the local level to some of these schools was there pushback from state governments as former confederates sort of head back into government positions and that kind of thing in in state in the state of tennessee is there is there governmental pushback uh, to the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen's Schools. Well, uh, interestingly, what a lot of people don't realize is that Tennessee actually did have a public education system between 1867 and 1869. So in Tennessee, African-American men received the right to vote in 1867, which was prior to the passage of the 15th Amendment. So they got that before the nation as a whole. And in um, a w- as a way uh, to, you know, uh, make sure that, that their um, votes had been 
taken seriously. The uh, Republican legislators in the General Assembly created a public school system for Tennessee. It was segregated, Mm -hmm. but it was for African-Americans and white students. And um, it it coexisted with the Freedmen's Bureau, and it it worked with the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, I think at one point in 1869, the Bureau estimated that there were about 50 African-American schools being supported by state funds. Mm -hmm. So there was money involved there appropriated by the state of Tennessee to educate children for the first time ever in the state. And it lasted for those um, three years. And then when the conservatives uh, regained the legislature, they um, uh, stopped the the school um, system, the public school system. Uh, but uh, it's they, they began another one, also a segregated one in, um, I believe it was 1875. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so, so it, there, that the ground again the groundwork was laid and so um it it was very poorly funded uh, until the early 1900s but there were there were there was a public school system in tennessee all right well we're going to take one more break we'll be right back on history's hook don't go away history's hook with your host tom price will be right back after this brief commercial break This is Jim Ross, and you are listening to Front Porch Radio, WKOM 101.7, located in Columbia, Tennessee. First responders know seconds count when saving lives, and emergency response can often be delayed due to difficulty navigating rural locations, congested subdivisions, mobile home parks, and apartment complexes. The Locator 911 is a unique life-saving bulb. In normal use, a porch light. And when activated by you, a multicolored flashing beacon for first responders to help them find you in the event of an emergency. For more information, stop by your local fire department or visit thelocator911.com. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. The crimson and white jerseys. Front court to the rack and the flood. The sound of a buzzer beater. Got it to go as the buzzer sounds. The roll tide chant from the crowd. Three. Got it. And he's fouled. It can only be Alabama basketball. Join the Alabama Crimson Tide right here. On your home for Alabama basketball. The Crimson Tide Sports Network from Learfield. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen Schools in Tennessee. Dr. Van Zelm, the Bureau was begun under the Lincoln administration in, I think, March of 1865. Within a month, President Lincoln was assassinated, and Andrew Johnson, a Tennessean, uh, his vice president, ascended to the presidency. How did Johnson feel about the Freedmen's Bureau, and what policy did he pursue uh, in regards to the Bureau as compared to, to Lincoln? Was there a difference? 
Well, um, President Johnson um, did not support the Freedmen's Bureau, and in 1866, he actually vetoed a congressional bill to um, renew the Bureau, um, because as I mentioned earlier, it was just founded to last for one year initially. Um, Congress um, passed another bill over his veto and extended the Bureau to 1868 and gave it that appropriation that I had mentioned. Um, And so, but, you know, it's important to remember and I, I know I alluded to this earlier, just uh, the whole idea of there being, of the federal government um, having this kind of a role in people's lives was just still alien to most Americans. I mean, even some of the Republican supporters of the Freedmen's Bureau, they were concerned that it was too much of an expansion of federal authority. So, um, it you know, it, Its demise to us seems like, wow, you know, they could have done so much more and they ended way too soon. And we don't we have trouble getting our minds around it. But we have to go back to that time period and the outlook at the time and the focus on um, local authority, individualism. And just there wasn't yet this whole idea that um, that um, agencies of the federal government or state and local governments could be there to um, to to assist uh, individuals when they needed it and get them to move on to a, a better place. Is and this a first in that regard, or were there other programs within the federal government that did things not not exactly like this or even necessarily similarly to, to this particular endeavor? But but is this a first in that regard with the federal government? Well, it is often considered the first sort of social welfare agency um, in the nation. And so you really have to wait um, until um, the progressive movement of the late um, 19th century and early 20th century until you begin to have um, more of these kinds of programs at the governmental level that that are there to um, assist people in in a variety of ways and there to regulate some of the various um, excesses of of society uh, just you know without any kind of regulation and, and trying to to assist those who might fall between the cracks right the need f- a, sa- a safety net the Freedmen's Bureau besides schools had had some other initiatives which we've alluded to a little bit Joanne you just put a marker up for a Freedmen's Bank yes. uh, that existed in <laughs> Colombia tell, tell us a little bit about that. The uh, Friedman Bank was actually started by um, uh, S.M. Ornell, who was in Congress at the time and a local um, postmaster here. And it was basically to allow the uh, African Americans to put their money in a bank because they were they were not saving. They were not, uh, you know, uh, using uh, they didn't have a banking facility available to them. So. Right. So the Freedmen's Bureau is really, they're, they're trying to figure out every facet that is going to allow formerly enslaved people to become citizens, exactly. active citizens in the community. So exactly. education and banking, all, all of those things are part of their yeah. initiative, which is fascinating to me. The, One other thing that I don't think we've mentioned was the hospitals. They also did uh, some work with the hospitals also, because medical care was a big, big issue with the um, former slaves also. The Freedmen's Bureau ultimately failed, uh, being terminated in 1872. What were the causes of its demise? 
Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, again, even some of its supporters were worried that it was it was too it was the government, the federal government going too far, getting too involved in the the nitty gritty details of of, um, people's everyday lives. But it was also just part of the whole um, retreat from Reconstruction and the whole retreat from the war, the whole weariness of of Americans, uh, many of them, with um, the whole issues of emancipation, the transition from slavery to freedom. These were gigantic issues of the time. I mean, I know sometimes we think we're in tough times, but if you think about what happened back then, and, and you know, the war was incredibly violent. The violence did not stop in 1865. It continued after that. Um, we were undergoing an amazing social revolution that um, took place basically, other than the war itself, took place nonviolently as far as you did not have enslaved people rising up against their owners and um, committing violent acts against them. You did not have that. So it's in, in that way, it was a peaceful revolution, but it was an in, intense social revolution that took place in, in the United States during this period. And it, 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 it there was, you know, forward movement and then retreats and forward and retreats. And the retreats were much um, worse uh, in in the long run, and, and it took you know a hundred years until you had your second reconstruction during the civil rights movement. So it was it, it's very difficult. To, when the, uh, when the bureau closes in eighteen seventy two, where are people getting their education at that point? How does that how does that change here in Murray County? The the church the schools that were established in the churches they just continued. The communities hired the teachers. They just continued, like with Mount Middle Lebanon and like St. Paul. There was a school eventually ended up in Hopewell uh, AME Church. They just continued in the churches in the so communities. So those partnerships that the bureau really fostered uh, with the local communities they're the ones who sort of step up and and exactly. continue the education. Yes, and and the, the individuals uh, families supported the schools. And um, there's a great quote from the superintendent of education in Tennessee for the Freedmen's Bureau in July of 1870. He said, we call upon the freedmen to be of good courage and sustain by their own efforts all the schools in their power. Mm-hmm. So that they were they were given that mandate to try to do that. And and so they they pressed on with it. But it I mean, definitely there were there were fewer schools by the, um, you know, by the mid 1870s than there had been earlier. Really exactly. quickly. In your opinion, what's the greatest legacy of the Freedmen's Bureau? Laying this groundwork for education and promoting the ideal that so many Americans hold so dear that education is the way to improve your life, uh, to pursue happiness, and to, to freedom. Yes, and to gain gain the, to gain full freedom and citizenship. That's an amazing story. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise today. We really appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time. This is Clayton Harris, and you're listening to 101.7 WKOM Columbia. 
Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I'm a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Do you use Elf Bars? Old School Vapor has over 100 authentic flavors for only $18.99 each. Check out their other January sales like buy one, get one free for select Tesco bars, 25% off glass pipes and Mike Tyson's Delta 8 bites, or 50% off smell-proof bags. Go shop Old School Vapor's selection of over 200 cannabis products from brands like Looper, Torch, Hidden Hills, and more. Check them out on Instagram or Google Old School Vapor to find your nearest location. That's Old School Vapor. I just want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat, yet you have no balance to anything that you say. You act like a bunch of Southern You are ridiculous. You're a horrible show. You're a horrible representation of Tennessee. Y'all are disgusting. You're disgusting human beings. And either balance it out with someone who has a half a clue what they can talk about. You got a bus driver up there acting like he's better than him just because of what? I have no idea what his points are other than what Tucker Carlson told him what to say. Y'all are disgusting human beings. You need to get off the Three Dudes with a View, triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM. One of the best things about having kids is grandkids. And one of the best ways to get them outdoors is to take them fishing. It will open up a whole new world of conversation and wonder. It's easy to get started. For more information and instructional videos to get you going, visit tnwildlife.org. Purchase your license at gooutdoorstennessee.com. This is Dr. Michael Tyler at Family Dentistry of Mount Pleasant. In my time of 15 years on the 911 board of Murray County, we consistently sought new life-saving methods and tools to make response times quicker. When I was introduced to the Locator 911 emergency bulbs, I was amazed at the simplicity and how the bulb shaved life-saving seconds and minutes off of medical responses. After that, I supported the bulb, and today it's in use in 48 states, helping 911 responders everywhere find people easier. With a 10-year life expectancy and a normal white light, non-emergency uses, flashing, pulsing, high-lumen visibility in emergencies, it's the first porch bulb that shows responders exactly which home right now needs help, day or night. Fire organizations around the county are using these for fundraising programs. Call or visit Columbia, Mount Pleasant, Summertown Fire Departments, or go to thelocator911.com. Seconds count and minutes are the difference between life and death. Stay safe. I'll never forget the day I decided to go out for the football team. 
Mr. Banks, the JV football coach and my history teacher, asked me to stay after class. I thought I was in trouble. He said, hey, Darius, have you thought about going out for football? I think you'd be great. Fact is, I never played football. Fact is, I never had anyone tell me I'd be great at something. So, with no experience at all, I signed up. And a week later, I padded up and was running drills on the field. I never was great, but playing high school sports was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I was accepted by my teammates, and I learned that when someone believes in you, you can believe in yourself. Encourage a student you know to take part in a high school sport. This message presented by the TSSAA and the Tennessee Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Do you want your business advertising to reach more listeners? Not sure how? At Front Porch Radio, we want you to reach more listeners than ever before. Let people know what you do and where to reach you. Right here on Front Porch Radio. It's fast, fun, and easy to get started growing your business today. Contact James Dickinson at 931-446-2028. That's 931-446-2028. Front Porch Radio. We can make your dreams come true. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.